Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before God, let us stand and affirm the promise that relates to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. And so allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to unreachable heights to us and to break all evil and sin that binds us. May in this service be cursed, as before, all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, covetousness, ignorance, all of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy nation and stand, Lord, in the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness, and may your saints be clothed in your salvation, and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and allow us to find your holy countenance. May this service be presented into your divine arms. Guide it with your uplifted hand. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated. Yeah, 
Yeah. 
Yeah.
And so, if you have a Bible, you can open along with me to a familiar place of Scripture for us that contains a depth of the mercies and wisdom of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verses 45 and 48. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The sermon that I would like to continue is called, Called to Perfection. We already know that this commandment is the inheritance of all the saints of all time, and this commandment is addressed by Christ only to his disciples. And therefore, those who do not accept the authority of the person sent by God have no relation whatsoever to the inheritance of this commandment. To fulfill this commandment, we have stopped to study the purpose of God's righteousness in the heart of a person. What purpose is the righteousness of God in our heart intended to fulfill? And specifically, we have been studying that the purpose of the righteousness of God in our heart accepted by us in the broken tablets of testimony in which we, with the law, died to the law so that we could live for the one who died and rose is comprised of us receiving the affirmation of our salvation in the new tablets that are intended to give God the basis to give us the promise not through the law but through the righteousness of faith just as he had given it to Abraham and his seed. For the promise that he would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Romans chapter 4 verse 13 we have noted that the righteousness of faith in our heart is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God, or our obedience to the gospel word spoken by the messenger of God in the face of a person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. The faith of God is information that comes from hearing the word of God. Faith is from listening and hearing the word of God. It is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It's not what I feel, but it's what I know. And our faith is our obedience or our obedience to the gospel word that we hear. And so the promise of the peace of God is given only to those people who obey the order of God cooperation with which he sends us his word through the mouth of the messengers of God. Therefore, the covenant of peace in the heart of a person is the result of the obedience of his faith to the faith of God in the words of the messenger of God. In previous services, we, in a certain format, as far as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied the first six signs to test that we are the sons of God. And we have stopped to study the seventh sign. This is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or the selective love of God. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. We have noted that according to this passage, the rule of the peace of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition, if we are clothed in the holy or the selective love of God. 
and if the selective love of God abides in our hearts. I will remind you that the word selective means holy, because holiness separates one thing from another. It chooses. It loves something and it hates something else. That's why the understanding of false Christianity uh, that God loves us just as we are is false. God loves His image in us and His likeness in us. He loves the righteous and He hates sinners. And with a fire, He is going to pour out His anger toward them through the word of the gospel word, through the gospel word of His messengers. That's why we must always keep this in mind. In the selective love of God, which is the atmosphere of the peace of God, contains the good, wonderful, eternal, and incomprehensible to our mind goals of God that are called to build unique and peace relationships between God and His children, but that are accessible to our heart or the mind of Christ, which is the mind of our new man. With this mind, we can comprehend the goals of God. To arrive at a more practical reality regarding the selective love of God, we will go deeper and deeper into the character and property of God's selective love in the light of seven virtues. And here are these seven virtues. They are virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. They, I remember when I was still uh, a young boy at seven years of age, they were called uh, the Ladder of Peter. If you don't have the Ladder of Peter, I was told, you can't draw near to God, to heaven, because the path towards salvation is only by this ladder. And it was called in the circle of that church that I grew up in, it was called the Ladder of Peter. And then I had understood that this Ladder of Peter is that same ladder by which James or Jacob had seen the angels ascend and descend, and he had received, thanks to this ladder, revelations and promises. Not one of the promises cannot be received if it does not go through this ladder. So if our inner essence does not coincide with the characteristics of these virtues, and therefore each individual virtue of the fruit of virtue contains the characteristics of all other virtues, because they flow from one another, fulfill one another, strengthen one another, and are found in one another. Second, these virtues are in the light of the seven characteristics. They are called to be the moral perfections and standards that are inherent to the essence of God. Because we are called to be perfect as God is perfect. And these are these perfections. Third, these virtues are the great and precious promises given to us through Christ and in Christ, with which, which we can receive only by faith, and they are going to be revealed only toward the end days. Apostles understood quite well that many things God revealed to them, but they themselves on their own could not understand them fully. And that's why Apostle Peter says, these unsearchable riches of Christ are contained in heaven and are ready to be revealed in the last days through the faith of God. For those people 
who are who are chosen, who have made themselves saved. God doesn't make people saved. People themselves accept salvation, make themselves saved because they receive salvation according to the conditions of God. If God were to make everybody saved, He would do so, but He can't make everybody saved because He has made us sovereign. He has created a person and given him sovereignty. And therefore, God, without the agreement of man himself, who on the conditions of God must accept salvation, he can't save this person. A person must learn the conditions with which he must make his decision. Here I offer you, God says, life and death, blessings and curses. Of course, a divine heart desires for everyone to be saved, and he says, I want you to choose life. God says, I want you to choose life. Unfortunately, many Christians choose death and curse. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christians. Each parable of Christ ends with many, I mean, many parables end with many are called, but few are chosen. Furthermore, these virtues presented in the light of seven characteristics are the incorruptible treasures and riches which we must become enriched with. These are the unsearch these are the unfading riches that contains earthly riches. Fifth, we can enter into the inheritance of these virtues in the light of seven unearthly characteristics only by accepting the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of our life, which is impossible to a carnal person or an infant who is swayed by every kinds of winds of teaching, but only those people who have grown into the full measure of the stature of Christ and they know the voice of their shepherd and they run away from foreign voices. And this is only one voice that God presents in each, in each church. If this is His church, Church of God, God has only one voice in the, voice of, in the face of one person who has and contains and carries the fatherhood of God, who is able to read and to see that which others don't see. He is anointed to carry the seed of the Word of God in order for His helpers to water this seed, and God is going to grow it. Furthermore, the means we are called to enact for the acceptance of the power of the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of our life is the obedience, as we have said, the obedience of our faith to the faith of God. And seventh, by inheriting these great and precious promises in the fruit of our spirit, we are made partakers of God's essence, because of which the proclamation of the faith of our heart becomes equal to the words coming from the mouth of God. For the true virtue expressed in the seven dignities or virtues and characteristics of the selective love of God has nothing in common with human love that is filled with ignorance, selfishness, and inconsistency. Pride, where a person relies on his own mind that he is able to distinguish good from evil. And he comes to church, not as a disciple, but as an inspector who says, Oh, I don't agree with this. 
People think, they say they think, I think something happened to our pastor because sometimes through pastor, God can give certain truths that might be that are incomprehensible to our own minds. But for us, it is important to first to know not what pastor says, but this is truly, a, whether or not this is truly a pastor. This is where we must be based on, not what he says, but who he is for us. Maria did not understand a lot of what her son had said. It's written that she said she placed everything in her heart. Very few disciples understood what Christ said. Many parables he had explained and some he didn't. Some things he never explained to them, especially those things or expressions that seemed foolish to others. Whoever does not eat the body of the Son of God or not drink his blood will not have life, he had said. Many disciples had stumbled and said, this is already too much, it's going too far. And we thought that this was the prophet of God, but in fact, this is a foolish man, they had said, and they turned away from Christ. And as we remember, when people leave, when people who are with you had left, you feel pain. In this minute, the disciples had felt pain. There were very few of them, 12 of them, from the multitude that were there originally. They had come wounded. And Peter said, Rabbi, many had left for good because they did not understand what you had said. They were, they said they had stumbled. Jesus, you might think that he would, to be broken, begin to worry, have a storm come upon him. How can this be so? But he calmly asked, do you also want to go? Why did you not go along with them? And they answered, we are based on not what you say, but who you are. They said, where would we go? You have eternal life. He again didn't explain anything to them, but said, You are blessed. You are blessed. Because not flesh and blood had opened this to you, but your Father who lives in heaven. And only then, later on, He will reveal this to them. And as I say, this is God's principle so that the children of God understand that there is the prophetic purpose of the Word of God and there is somebody who reveals the vision. As a prophetic word, we can't understand it with our own mind. Cursed is the one who tried to understand the word with his own mind. Cursed is this person. He makes him, he places himself under a curse. This is written in Ezekiel. You will die the death of the uncircumcised because you have placed your mind equal to the mind of God. You came to church not as a disciple, but as an inspector and are expecting what pastor says. You are inspecting those whom you have yourselves chosen. Be afraid to inspect the person whom God has established, because at this time you are inspecting God and not man. When you have placed a person and chosen him, 
he must be inspected because you are choosing not what is the best but what is the worst you are choosing a kind of person that is going to flatter your uncircumcised ear and who is not going to shepherd you but you who you are going to shepherd you're going to choose for him a counsel whom he must obey and who is going to control him but you're going to say we have a pastor all right Uh, we began to study the selective love of God in the form of seven virtues and that the fact that this is the bond of all perfection and it's called to destroy the power of death in our body and replace it with the resurrection of Christ in our bodies and clothe our earthly bodies into this resurrection in the face of our new man. The bond of perfection, the selective love of God in relation to the seven virtues is unconditional and apart from the tolerant and selfish love of man, the unconditional selective love of God differs in that it carries the all-consuming zeal of God, His omnipotence, and His absolute wisdom that is impossible to use for selfish and ignorant reasons. The tolerant love of man toward man can be easily used for selfish purposes. Here are how the pages of Scripture define the strength of the love of God. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Songs of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. We already know that the level of the love of God is defined by the level of the power of the hatred of God toward evil and those who practice evil. If you know how to love but don't know how to hate, that means that you don't really know how to love. The level of love must be equal to the level of hatred toward evil. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9. This is also Psalms 44. This is referring to Christ and those who are found in Christ. It is impossible to love um, righteous, love righteousness in an abstract form. They mu it must be loved only in the carriers of righteousness. Psalms 11, 5-7 The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. Only by loving what God loves and hating what God hates do we demonstrate the perfection of God and so be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. To demonstrate this perfection in His reaction to good, which we must point toward good people and the hatred which we must demonstrate toward those who do evil and lawlessness. For the selective love of God, according to its unearthly nature, 
in the format of seven virtues is called to bring us to the full measure of the stature of Christ, or the perfection that is inherent to our Heavenly Father, so that we can shine with the light of our Son on the righteous and unrighteous and pour out our reign according to the intentions of God on the just for blessings and on the unjust for punishment. Considering, however, that these seven virtues do not have analogies in the earthly dimension of the human lexicon, nor any dictionaries of this world that are accessible to men. The love of God is the foundation and atmosphere of the moral law that reveals in our heart the essence of God, as well as the essence of the kingdom of heaven. And this is not all. The love of God agape is a sovereign love that is unconditional only in relation to those people whom it chooses to understand it. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. So among many brethren, many who are foreknown and predestined. Foreknowledge shows that God is not guilty and that people are going to die. They themselves are guilty. This means that he is not guilty in the fact that there are wars on this earth, that injustice reigns on the earth, that truth is encroached upon. People themselves do have done this. And therefore, people ask, if there is a God, why does he allow these things on the earth? Because they don't know that God has made them sovereign, and it's not God that does these things. That God does not do this. All that God has done, he has given his one and only son. He has paid the price for our sins. So that those who accept salvation on his conditions could not perish but have eternal life. This is what God has done. And you people, wicked and lawless, have made these wars. You have challenged God. You have made your heads deities and have said, I don't understand this. I don't agree with this. As if God had made you inspectors and apostles to understand scripture and to dictate to pastors what they must understand and how they must teach. Thanks to its sovereignty, the selective love of God never violates legal rights and relationships with those people whom it selects, and it never allows the sovereign rights of its master to be violated. In a certain format, we have already studied the manifestation of the selective love of God and the virtues of virtue, knowledge, self-control, and patience. We have stopped to study the virtue of the love of God and the mystery of her godliness. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 
And it's interesting that all God, this God has done through his saints. God has shown through those people who were born from the seed of the word of truth and who have grown into the full measure of the stature of Christ. It is through them he has shown all of this. Because through the church, the wisdom of God was made known. The church was placed to be a light to the world so people can know who God is. Hell can understand the authority of God only by the level of saints. The demon says, I know Jesus. People tried to cast out demons with the name of Jesus, whom they had actually not known, and whom they have not accepted in their heart. They had tried to cast out demons with the name of Jesus, whom they had not known, and demons said, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? He had ashamed them, and they had ran out. Today, God does not do this in the physical sense, but He does it in a way where they are naked and ashamed. They scream, they run somewhere, only because they are playing with the demons because these people focus on evangelism and the casting out of demons and wonders. But in Scripture, the goal of God is not this. The goal of God is to destroy the power of death in the body of a person and to erect the power of life. This is God's purpose. When He had created the body of a person, His purpose was to live in this body, and He is not going to step away from His goal. And He finds people who are going to be ready for their bodies to become a temple of God who accept this promise and who make for themselves this their primary goal to prepare themselves for the rapture. It is through the manifestation of the fruit of godliness that we can identify the true love of God agape in the heart of man as well as his thoughts, words, actions, and the way in which he dresses which must not excite the sexual instincts of the opposite sex. We mentioned that there exists a key difference in the godliness of God demonstrated in his favor toward man from the godliness of man which he must demonstrate in his love to God. For example, the godliness of man directed in relation to God is his favor toward God. It's his goodness toward God and his gratitude. It's his ability to look upon orphans and widows and their afflictions and to keep himself from being defiled by the world. The godliness of man is ability to imitate Christ and think of what is heavenly, to see God in his good, acceptable, and perfect will. And God's godliness is God's reaction to man's goodness. His grace and his favor. God says, turn to me and I will turn to you. God presents his truth in the information of the gospel word. And if a person accepts this truth, then God thanks him for this truth. That's why the godliness of God is his goodness, his gratitude, and his good deed and good giving. It's his good in its absolute sense. It's his good deed and good giving.
Because the word grace, one of its meanings is gratitude. The Old and the New Testament define the virtue of the love of God and the discipline of godliness as one of the great mysteries of God himself that protects and makes the love of God impossible to falsify. Despite these characteristics that are called to yield the essence of godliness, a forgery of godliness exists that will challenge the true manifestation of godliness. And we constantly see this within the church. Of, um, a godliness that challenges the true manifestation of godliness, a false godliness. First, Second Timothy 3.5 We are separating ourselves from these people and God waits and then he begins to throw these people out of the church and cleanse the church. He binds them in sheaves. To bind them means that they are do not just leave and don't go anywhere. They are bind in sheaves. They make unions among themselves. They make synagogues of Satan. If we do not break off relations with people who have only an outward appearance of godliness, they will corrupt our godliness consisting of our good morals. Because of this, we, together with them, will inherit the destruction prepared for them. And keeping this in mind, it was necessary for us to answer four classic questions. What characteristics does Scripture give godliness in God and man? What purpose is godliness intended to fulfill in relations between God and man and man with God? What conditions are necessary to fulfill for our godliness to cooperate with the godliness of God? And by what sign should we define that our godliness truly cooperates with the godliness of God? In a certain format, as much as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have studied the character of the first three questions, and therefore, we will turn our study to the fourth question. By what signs should we define that our godliness truly cooperates with the godliness of God? And so, one of the signs that our godliness cooperates with the godliness of God is that we are the thick and bright clouds of God filled with His moisture, able to swirl about by His kindness for correction or for mercy. Job chapter 37 verses 11 through 16 Also with moisture he saturates the thick clouds He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about Being turned by his guidance That they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth He causes it to come whether for correction Or for his land or for mercy Listen to this, O Job Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. Job, who was sought after, and, Job, and God says, Hear this, listen to this, O Job. Each of us is this kind of Job, because inside of us we have hellfire that comes from the power of death in the face of the old man whom we have inherited through Adam. From him come all calamities. And God says, listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. And so, to swirl about according to the guidance of God for correction or mercy 
is to be carriers of goodness and correction of the one who is perfect in knowledge. This is one of the founding signs by which we must test ourselves for the partaking of our goodness to the goodness of God. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Romans 11.22 Do you see what kind of God's love is demonstrated here? If you do not abide in the goodness of God and it does not abide in you, you are going to be cast off. Do you see, I turn my goodness towards you because you have demonstrated your goodness toward me. That's why I turn it toward you. If you do not abide in this, you are going to be cut off. You see my severity. And who is the severity towards? It's written, severity to those who have fallen off, to those who fell, to those who have accepted God, but then said, we don't agree with this. There are those who try to interpret scripture with their own heads or their own minds. By expressing the goodness of God to some and the severity of God to others, we become carriers of His justice and His holiness. The phrase, do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of His clouds to shine, points to the fact that not all clouds can be clouds that God guides and commands the light to shine from His cloud, but only those clouds that give God the foundation to contain His moisture, which is confirmed by other places of Scripture. And for example, one of these places of Scripture is in Job chapter 26 verses 8 through 9. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. Job 26, 8 through 9. The cloud over his throne. In other words, his throne is in his cloud. He sits on this cloud. That is why we are going to often meet with the fact that all that God does here on earth, He does in the cloud, through the cloud, and with the cloud, with His cloud. And in order to distinguish the clouds of the Most High in the face of saints who fear God from the clouds alien to His nature, in the face of pseudo-saints who do not have the fear of the Lord, we need to know that our ability to give God the foundation to fill us with His moisture and our willingness to pour out His light and be guided according to His intentions is our function, the fulfillment of which is the expression of our good will towards God. And the function to fill us with moisture so that we can be led by the Holy Spirit and directed according to the intentions of God this is the favor of God, which is His answer to our favor toward Him, expressed in our readiness to be filled with His moisture. And in order to test ourselves on the subject of whether or not we are ready to meet the requirements of God's clouds, able to cooperate with the godliness of God to give Him the foundation to fill us with the moisture of the Holy Spirit, to be led by His intentions, we will need to answer a series of questions. By what definition does Scripture determine the requirements necessary to meet the requirements of the clouds of the Most High, filled with His moisture and pouring out His light? What purpose are we called to fulfill in the dignity of the Heavenly Father's clouds, filled with His moisture and pouring out His light? What conditions are necessary to fulfill for God to affirm in us 
affirm us in the dignity of his clouds that we are able to be filled with his moisture and pour out his light. And finally, by what signs should we de define that we are truly the clouds of the Most High, able to be filled with his moisture and pour out his light and be guided by the wind of the Holy Spirit under the guidance of the Heavenly Father for correction and mercy? When answering the questions posed, we must bear in mind that the essence of the existing parable tell us the eternal goals of God expressing His intentions, which are our mission and our vocation, which is comprised of being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. To do so, we must pour the light from our cloud on the just and on the unjust and pour out the moisture received from God in the rain on the just and on the unjust. Secondly, we are called upon to pour out the moisture of the Heavenly Father in the rain and pour out His light according to His intention and not according to our whim or our own conclusions. In the New Testament, the meaning behind being clouds of God is presented in these words. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Which means that if we do not meet the requirements of God's clouds capable of being filled with moisture and pouring out light, one for correction and another for mercy, then our sonship is under a very big question. If we think that God loves everyone, we are not sons. We are wicked and lawless people, if we think this way. In a certain format, we have already studied the seven signs contained in the first question. In brief definitions, I will remind you of their characteristics, and then we will move on to study the second question. And we have stopped to study the second question. I'll remind you, under the waterless clouds carried by the winds of all deceptive delusions alien to God, we consider the category of people in the congregation of saints who do not have the Spirit of the Lord and oppose the Spirit of the Lord. Apostle Paul had said this according to the Corinthian church, who do not have uh, any lack in any gifts he said, you don't have any lack in any gifts, but you are carnal who do not have the spirit. And I could not speak with you as if you were spiritual, but as if you were carnal in Christ. That's why speaking in tongues, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's not a spiritual level. The spiritual level is a transformed character because by virtue of their carnal nature expressed in ignorance these people are swayed and carried away by every wind of teaching by the cunningness of men by the cunning art of deception while under the clouds of the Most High we consider the category of saints led by the Holy Spirit by the new man created according to God in Christ Jesus in righteousness and holiness of true this is that small flock and this means that the clouds of the Most High can only be those saints who have grown to the full measure of the stature of Christ and began to meet the requirements of the perfection inherent in God. Furthermore, we noted that the clouds of the Most High that are in His possession are the image of His great mystery and are called upon to play a fateful role adoption and redemption of our body from the law of sin and death. 
first, the cloud of the Most High in Scripture is a symbol of the glory of God, place where God dwells, garments which God is clothed in, and midst from which He speaks. Second, the clouds of the Most High in Scripture is a garment and swaddling band when it burst forth and issued from the womb. Third, the cloud of the Most High in Scripture is the glory of the Lord coming out of the north like a raging fire. Fourth, the cloud of the Most High and the dignity of His glory is presented in Scripture in the category of those saints in whose bodies God has reigned, because of which they became joy for every good land and a joy for a multitude of isles. Fifth, the cloud of the Most High and the dignity of, of His glory is in that category of saints who died through the law to the law, by virtue of which their bodies became the image of the tabernacle of the congregation into which Moses, as a minister of the Old Testament, could not enter when the cloud of glory filled the tabernacle, because the glory upon the face of Moses was lost in relation to that glory that was in the tabernacle because on the face of Moses was the glory of the ministry of condemnation but in the tabernacle was the glory of the service of justification that's why he couldn't enter there despite the fact that his face had shone from the glory and the people of Israel couldn't look upon this glory Paul said now imagine this great glory but it is found in us we carry it that's why people cannot see it in, a, in the literal sense but they can understand it, acknowledge it through the word we proclaim. Because the words that we proclaim define who we are. What we say defines us. Six, the cloud of the Most High and the dignity of His glory is like a cloud of fragrance in which God revealed Himself to Aaron. As Paul had said, we are fragrance to God for to those who are saved in which this fragrant cloud protected Aaron from death because he being a minister of the Old Testament did not coincide with the requirement of being a fragrant cloud of God's glory. That's why he was supposed to represent the service of justification in order to draw near to God. God would have killed him because Aaron did not coincide with the ministry of justification. He needed a fragrant cloud. He had poured fire into the incensor and a fragrant cloud, and he entered, and then God could speak with him. And he had entered only one time a year. Only one time a year. And these saints of whom we are talking about, the clouds, the clouds of the Most High, they are continually in the presence of God. They don't need to enter and exit. They abide in this glory, and this glory abides in them. They are this glory, this glory of the Lord. Seventh, the cloud of the Most High, the dignity of His glory, is like a chariot of the Most High, on which He walks on the wings of the wind, so that sinners may be consumed from the earth, and the wicked be no more. A chariot has four wheels. It is a fiery chariot. And these chariots are very horrific when Ezekiel looked upon them. This talked about the omnipresence of God. These four 
wheels in this chariot is that cloud because four wheels are four teachings that have a trinity that contain a trinity and when this teaching is found in saints they are the carriers of it the teaching itself cannot carry God it is abstract in order to become a chariot in order for the teaching to become a chariot it's necessary for someone to accept it and for him to be drenched in this for it to abide in him and for him to abide in this teaching and then this kind of a person a group of this people the category of this people becomes a chariot of the Most High on which he w goes on the wings of the clouds under the direction of the Holy Spirit a second question what purpose are we called to fulfill in the dignity of clouds of the Heavenly Father filled with his moisture and pouring out his light and during our previous sermon when studying this question we have already examined the first three components and I will remind you of their definitions and after that we will move on to studying the other components first in the dignity of the clouds of the Heavenly Father filled with his moisture and pouring out his light we are called to be the atmosphere for the glory of the Lord in the temple which he dwells in second in the dignity of the clouds of the Heavenly Father we are called to be a fragrant cloud above every dwelling place of Mount Zion third we are called to punish everyone who has called the one who represents the fatherhood of God as having a marital union with an Ethiopian. Fourth, we are called to become a refuge for his people from the wrath of God, to separate the dead from the living when the dead gather the multitude against us. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the cloud of the Lord appeared then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment and they fell on their faces so Moses said to Abraham take a censer and put fire in it from the altar put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord the plague has begun he already knew about this Aaron did not know and Moses had known then Aaron took it as Moses commandment commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly and already the plague had become had begun among the people so he put in the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living so the plague was stopped numbers chapter 16 verses 42 through 48 it was Moses and Aaron who were responsible for the people of God and for the people of God were a cloud of glory pouring out the light of the Most High from which God could turn to the people and separate that bastards from the innocent by the way the verb pour in relation to the phrase pour out light in Hebrew means to be filled with the wrath of the Almighty or the Most High. It is to separate the guilty from the innocent, to protect the innocent from the wrath of the Almighty, to pour the cup of the wrath of the Almighty upon the enemies, 
to spill the wrath of the Almighty on enemies, to disperse the enemies of the light by the power of the Almighty, to disperse the enemies of the light by the fear of the Almighty. The function to pour out the light belongs to the people whom God has set in the Church of Christ to bear responsibility and to be intercessors before God to separate the guilty from their midst during the outpouring of the wrath of God on those who resist the power of God in the face of his messengers. So when they entice the people of God and the anger of God is poured out among the people, at this time these people are called to separate the living from the dead, the guilty from innocent, for so God does not destroy everyone. In the book of Jeremiah, such a function is associated with an assignment, to be an assayer and fortress among his people, to know and follow their path when they come against us. I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people, that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanders. They are bronze and iron, they are all corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. It's interesting that God says, among my people, then he says, I have set you as an assayer and fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 27 to 30. Proceeding from the present ordinance, it can't be taken out out of context of other places of Scripture. When God says this, He also has a remnant. He also looks at the remnant, his chosen ones. And proceeding from the present ordinance to be the cloud of the Most High, which will represent the dignity of his assayer and fortress among his people, to know and observe the path of stubborn apostates, it is necessary to distinguish the path of stubborn apostates from the path of the righteous. Considering that what the goals of a person are, such are his paths, a man is known in his ways, which lead him to goals that correspond to his ways. In other words, both the ways of the stubborn apostates and the ways of the righteous determine the properties of their character and the object of the kind of food or the object of their longing and their thirst. And therefore, to be an assayer and fortress in order to follow the path of the people of the Most High is to fulfill the purpose of blowing fur to separate the path of the evil from the good and bring out the retribution of the evil and the reward of the good. The phrase, they are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanders, points to the fact that the food of these apostates is slander, which is the fruit of their envy, which they constantly experience due to the success and advantage of their neighbors, just as Cain had felt for Abel. The phrase, they are bronze and iron, they are all corruptors, indicates the fact that they pretend to be bronze and iron to hide their corruption and to present themselves as the workers of the Most High, being the laborers of the fallen cherub. In fact, they are not iron and bronze. They try to demonstrate that they are so, but to have this ability to 
judge ourselves, and bronze is the ability to judge the world. Therefore, to follow the path of the people of the Most High in order to give evil retribution alone and the good recompense to the good is the purpose and prerogative of the clouds of the Most High. So, those who are chosen. Fifth, in the dignity of clouds of the Heavenly Father filled with His moisture and pouring out His light, we are called to become strength to the poor and to refuge in their difficult time as they battle those who tyrannize them. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Isaiah 25 verses 4 through 5. Poor and needy is first and foremost an image of our new man who is subject to the angry tyrants in the face of sinful lusts that are from the old man over which stand the organized powers of darkness. Heat is an image of the wrath of God that discovers the old man in our body and gives power to the sinful lusts that come from the old man. To calm the storms of the enemies in our body as heat is reduced in the shadow of a cloud is to forgive the transgressions of the people of God in the name of Christ when they repent in their sins. When I ca call you to repentance and you confess your sins, and then when I forgive these sins in the name of Jesus Christ, because this is the command of each servant of God, then at this time, he as a cloud, he takes away the anger of God, the heat. He covers it. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. Again, this is the second time. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me. He is turning to the apostles, not just the, all the disciples, but to the apostles, to those who are representatives of the fatherhood of God, not to those who water, but to those who plant, who have the seed, those who read. Peace to you, as the Father has sent me. I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23. This says that those saints who have the power of the Father of God have the power to forgive sins or to retain sins, and no one else can do this. When a person representing the fatherhood of God in a congregation of saints proclaims forgiveness to those who repent and that they are cleansed of their sin, he becomes a refuge for the needy in their difficult time and help in the storm like a cloud in the heat. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He will not impute sin to us. He will view us as if we had never sinned. He will justify, just as somebody is justified in the court. First, he is he is blamed and then 
he goes through a trial. Do you see what God does? He does not only forgive, he cleanses, he justifies. He does not impute sin to man. It should be understood that if we accept the messenger of God and obey the voice of God and the voice of his messenger, God not only washes us from all unrighteousness, but also makes us an organic part of God's clouds so that we can inherit the reward that the messenger of God will. Since we obey him, we also become clouds. Take a look here. Obedience to the messages of God makes us just as he. We receive the same reward. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. These little ones are calling the, uh, he's calling the apostles, prophets, teachers, and so forth. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. Six. And the dignity of clouds, the heavenly Father, filled with his moisture and pouring out his light, we are called to be the place where God places his covenant in the sign of a rainbow for every person who comes to him. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants. This is when they had went out of the ark, when they had went out of death and went out to resurrection. This is referring to the fact that God makes a covenant with us in his, in his resurrection. There is a covenant he makes with us in the covenant of in his blood, and there is a covenant he makes with us in his resurrection. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, that all go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. So God makes a covenant with all who were in the ark, and all who had left the ark. So he takes these creatures and he unites them with these people and he calls them as if these creatures and these people are one. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the covenant, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. With every soul means with all creatures, birds, things that crawl, and so forth. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow should be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17.
Considering that God made a covenant with a man and with all the inhabitants of the ark, it follows that the image of the ark, with all its inhabitants, is every single saved person. The rainbow that yields the law of royal grace of God in the cloud, which God sends to the earth, with which God, in the person of all the inhabitants of the ark, made a covenant, this is a time when the law of God's grace reigns in the heart of a saved person through righteousness found in resurrection of Christ. And this happens when a person leaves the Ark of Salvation and puts on the resurrection of Christ in which he makes a covenant of peace with God to allow the grace of God to reign in his heart through righteousness. Noah's Ark is a type of salvation in the death of the Lord Jesus from the poured out anger of God on the sons of God who entered into union with the daughters of men. However, to establish the salvation found in the death of the Lord Jesus, it was necessary to leave the Ark or rise with Christ in order to make a covenant with God for all the inhabitants of the Ark, including our spirit, soul, and body. Therefore, as with the crime of one to all men is condemnation, so by the truth of one to all people is justification to life. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. A few words about those who have left the ark with us. They entered with us. We had died along with these animals, creatures, so forth. We had died with them in the death of the Lord Jesus. We came out with them. And God had made a covenant with all of them, a covenant, means all those animals crawling, birds, they had a, a dwelled in us. And this demonstrates that God had made a covenant with us and with all the component or all everything that is contained in us. Sometimes there's an expression, sometimes I have already talked about it. Don't awake the beast in me. So a person says that he has a beast. And if a wife begins to say something to him, he said, don't awake the beast in me. And they sometimes say to one another, don't awake the beast in me. They don't understand. Our emotions, I were driving with my spouse to church, and there were two small deer. He said, look how beautiful they are, calm they are. We have these animals in us that are common in us, these feelings. We also have these beasts in us, tigers, lions, hawks, crawling, uh, crawling creatures. But somehow, when God had placed all of this in the death, when we had resurrected, do you know who these animals had become? Scripture is written that, in Scripture it's written that when we have peace reigning in us, this is an image of the thousand-year reign in our hearts. Before we are raptured, then in our bodies we are going to experience this. It's written that uh, children will play with snakes. A lion is going to 
pasture with regular animals. There not be evil on the earth. When God had made these creatures, they weren't fear and evil to one another and to man. After the sinfall of man, animals began to uh, become a danger to one another and so forth. But now, in the resurrection of Christ, when we have lifted up in the resurrection of Christ, God had made a covenant with everything that is inside of us, and He said, with every flesh, what is in the flesh, so that we can understand who we are talking about. Yes, there were truly animals in the ark, there were crawling things, birds. This was an image. God said, I made an eternal covenant. What, do you think that God is going to make an eternal covenant with um, a fly? in the air? No, God makes a covenant with all the inhabitants of the ark that are in us, an eternal covenant. Our time has come to an end. We have heard this word today that can, again, if we have been found in captivity, captivity of our emotions, captivity of our beasts, and then death of the Lord Jesus Christ, these beasts can be turned into to be very kind. And when people turn to us and they pressure us, these beasts are not going to be brought to turmoil. And we're not going to say, don't awake the beast in me, because you will have peace and joy. You will understand that this person is just is just this so because the these circumstances that come upon him he is going to say these are just circumstances and he is going to cover this with love we will bow our bend our knees and for whom it is impossible our heads I will call I call upon I call upon all those who are bound by sin it doesn't matter what kind Whoever is bound by difficult circumstances, illnesses, physical illnesses, which you are tired of, which scare you, which you are battling with and have no success, continue to view yourselves in Christ Jesus as healthy. Proclaim this. Despite the fact that the promise is tearing to being fulfilled, God will fulfill it. May we pray God is waiting for you. Amen. I will pray along with you with your prayers and I ask you to deeply believe that God is for you. He is not against you. It doesn't matter what you have done, what circumstance you're in. He is for you. He is not against you. And right now, He is ready and able to destroy the web of sin. He is ready to take away all shame, to save you to take you up into your into his arms to take you up into a strong hand and to lead you to the his good goal your eyes let them be closed your hands raised to the heavens this is a sign that you're ready to receive from god what he desires to give you heavenly father in the name of jesus christ i come to you with my sins with my illnesses with my fears, with my circumstances, I ask you, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, heal me, lead me out of these circumstances. I love you. I continue to love your word. I believe in it. 
I proclaim the inexistent as existent. Create in me your mercy and free me from my enemies. Let the power of death be destroyed in my body and let the power of life be erected in its place. I believe in this with my heart. I await for it with patience. And right now, before heaven and hell, I would like to proclaim that according to your word, I am washed, I am cleansed, I am healed, I am justified, I am restored, I am saved. Your sins and transgressions are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord come upon you with his holy face and have mercy upon you and may he give you peace. May around you fall thousands and tens of thousands and not draw near you. May all of these blessings come upon you and upon your descendants and may they be fulfilled upon you and let the nation say Amen each time this kind of a service the service of justification it's accepted in heaven as an event of joy angels are brought into movement there's triumph in the heavens and in hell there's shame darkness the enemy is ashamed because you were able to believe not in your feelings not what you are feeling but what you are hearing you have obeyed to the heard word and you have come to your Lord and he has delivered for you from your sins you are again clean doesn't matter how you are feeling you are cleansed of your sins and when you go you are going to be carefully behave yourselves as a vessel of God may you be blessed before the Lord who is preparing you to the great glory here on earth who wants to boast of you before hell on the earth and before the heavens before his angels and so in conclusion to our service let us conclude it with our unchanging manifestation now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory in majesty dominion and power both now and forever. Amen.